We've got a 40-year-old woman presents with severe retrosternal chest pain 15 minutes after completing a five-mile run. Associated with diaphoresis and jaw pain, she presents to her local ED where the ECG shows ST segment elevation in the inferior leads. No traditional CV risk factors. Most likely diagnosis in this 40-year-old woman is dissection, acute coronary syndrome from plaque rupture, apical ballooning syndrome, or spontaneous coronary artery dissection. All right, next one. 67-year-old woman referred for exceptional chest discomfort. She's had diabetes. She had a non-STEMI with a right uh, uh, drug-eluting stent eight months ago. She currently is on aspirin, clopidogrel, and metoprolol. She's got a BMI of 42 and a blood pressure 150 over 85. Here's the electrocardiogram. Creatinine is 1.2, hemoglobin A1C is 9.5%. Okay. What is the best choice of an oral hypoglycemic agent? A, B, C, or D? Since I can't pronounce these. All right, next slide. The patient's family asks whether strict glucose control is beneficial in this woman. You advise A, a combination of insulin and metformin to keep the hemoglobin A1C less than 6.5%. B, a combination of uh, insulin and the TZD to keep the hemoglobin A1C less than 6.5%. Or neither, the target should be less than 8%. All right, so you can see from these questions is what we're doing now is we're moving from prevention of patients at risk for coronary artery disease to the assessment and management of patients with known coronary artery disease. And we've asked Dr. Reka Mancad, who works in our prevention and women's heart clinic, to come up and give us an overview on how we should manage the patients once they've developed known coronary artery disease. Reka? Thank you. So it's a pleasure to be here. Um, and this says known coronary artery disease, but actually I'm going to be talking about suspected and known coronary artery disease. So I have no relevant disclosures except to say that I'm actually recertifying this year as well. So I'm in the same boat as uh, many of you, so, um, which means I took a lot of time when I went through these slides. Uh, okay, so these are our learning objectives, and we're going to be going through um, all of these uh, individually uh, as we talk about this particular topic. What we have to know is atherothrombosis is a progressive process. So you had this incredible lecture talking about sort of this part of things where we talk about prevention. We don't want to develop a fatty streak. We don't want to go on to have that atherosclerosis progress. You're going to be hearing amazing talks later today where we talk about acute coronary syndromes. My focus is going to be on this middle group when we're talking about atherosclerosis that is causing symptoms. And we have to remember that CAD is, is progressive and it's dynamic. And this is a process that starts slowly and there's adaptive mechanisms that start. First, you have a nice normal coronary artery with no plaque, but then you start developing plaque in the wall of this. And you can see that you maintain the lumen. The coronary artery dilates as it develops plaque. And that is maintained for a while. So even if there's moderate atherosclerosis, you actually have good flow because the artery dilates. But as that gets more severe, the lumen is affected. So it's then that you get symptoms. I refer you all to the 2012 guidelines for stable ischemic heart disease. Um, and there was a 2014 update that talked about some specific factors. So a lot of my information that I'm going to be giving you are coming from those guidelines. So our first learning objective is to recognize the clinical presentation and characterize the symptoms of patients with known or suspected CAD. So this is known or suspected. 
So I'm going to start with a case. Uh, a 55-year-old gentleman who presents with chest pain. He has hyperlipidemia. LDL is quite high. Family history. He has some substernal ch uh, chest pain that radiates to his shoulder, but occurs unpredictably, sometimes with exertion. It's sometimes tight, sometimes sharp. It's been getting slightly worse and going on for the last few weeks. He's on no medications. His blood pressure is slightly elevated. His exam is unremarkable, and his labs were all within normal limits. And this is his electrocardiogram. So the first question you have to ask yourself is, is this patient having symptoms suggestive of CAD? So when you talk about that decision-making, there's some sort of breaks in the road, right? So first, you have to determine, is this life-threatening? You know, when I hear this story, do I send this person directly to the emergency room and, and you know, just sort of stop my evaluation there? The things that you have to remember about acute coronary syndrome, so is somebody having unstable angina, non-STEMI or STEMI? Is this an aortic dissection? Well, obviously, very different treatment algorithm. Is this pulmonary embolism? And pericarditis is not life-threatening, and you heard an amazing talk yesterday, but clearly treated very differently. So that's sort of the initial kind of which way do I go down this road when I hear the story of the chest pain. The clinical history and the company it keeps is very important. Clearly non-cardiac chest pain. If somebody goes, I've been playing paintball with my friends and I got hit in chest with a paintball, that chest pain is likely not coronary ischemia. So, you know, it's very easy. You don't need to do any more if it's clearly non-cardiac. But then it's all that stuff in the middle. How likely is it that the symptoms represent coronary artery disease or ischemia? And that's really what we're going to get at. So when you talk about that uh, in between, when you're trying to figure it out, it's very important to understand the pretest probability of disease. And that's where that story is so important. And what Bayes' theorem says is, depending on your pretest probability of disease, that determines the post-test likelihood of that disease. So if your pretest probability is really low, whether you have a negative test or a positive test, it really doesn't matter. If your pretest probability is really high, again, does it matter if the test is positive or negative? It's this middle group, right? So where your pretest probability is in the middle, where a negative or a positive test change your decision making. So what's a high likelihood of coronary artery disease? Known history of CAD, obviously that's easy. If you have typical angina, multiple risk factors, we talked about the ASCVD risk score where you come out with a high risk. The older you are, which is a big driver of the risk score. And obviously if you present more acutely, if you have ST changes or positive troponin. What is typical angina? It's very clear how the, it's defined. It's substernal chest discomfort with characteristic quality and duration that is provoked by exertion or stress, emotional stress, and relieved by rest or nitroglycerin. So if you have that whole story, that's typical angina. If you have two of that story, it's atypical angina. And if you just have one of that story, it's considered non-cardiac chest pain. So the story is extremely important. That's why we take so much time getting that history. And this has been described for a long, long time. 1768, William Heberden talks about discomfort while walking or after eating, so postprandial angina, in the breast area that feels like it'll take your life away, and if you stop, it goes away. Classic, typical angina is described way back in 1768. And knowing that story, again, you automatically start thinking about your pretest probability of disease. So if you have non-anginal chest pain, then no matter what age you are, the likelihood that you're going to have coronary, obstructive coronary artery disease is extremely low. Typical angina, no matter what age you are, especially if you're a man, very likely you're going to have disease. If you're a woman, it sort of doesn't pick up until your late 40s, early 50s, where you get more worried. But it's this atypical angina category where, again, there is some increased risk, but it's in that more moderate category. But again, age is a driving force. This is a low likelihood of CAD. A young woman, fleeting non-exertional chest pain, it's in the right chest, it's sharp, no real risk factors, might be on oral contraceptives, which could be a risk. So again, atypical symptoms in a young person with minimal risk factors and really a normal ECG and troponin. That's somebody that's, again, a low likelihood of CAD. 
But again, symptoms are sometimes. Nobody comes to you and says, yes, doc, I get this chest pain when I walk four blocks. It feels tight in the left side of my chest, and the moment I stop, it goes away. Boy, if they always came with that story, our life would be a lot easier. But we know that it can be very atypical. That's more common in women. women. Chest pain is still the most common symptom for coronary disease in women, but it's not the predominant symptom. It's sort of mixed in with other things like fatigue, shortness of breath, more uh, nausea, just a generalized feeling unwell. And diabetics, uh, they also can have very atypical disease and are more likely to have silent ischemia. So you have to be uh, aware. So the pearls for that first learning objective is that the clinical story, along with the patient's age, drives your pretest probability for ischemic heart disease. So the story is critically important. And why is it important? Because knowing the pretest probability drives the next step in the patient's evaluation. And that takes us into the learning objective number two where we're going to define the indications for appropriate types of testing, non-invasive testing, for the initial evaluation in patients with known or suspected CAD. So we go back to Bayes' theorem, and this is where we use it. If the stress test, when, when you talk about stress testing being helpful, it's really in that big middle range. Now, this is quite broad. If you say 10 to 90%, you might want to tighten it up a little bit, but really, it's in the people, kind of most of the people, in the middle where the test will help you. If it's a really low probability, don't, don't do any testing, even if they ask for it, because these tests aren't perfect, right? We have false positive and false negative rates of stress testing. So if it's a really low test, you can reassure that patient. If they have a really high pretest probability, maybe you go right onto coronary angiography. Now, in this case, when you talk about very high pretest probability, we're talking over 90%, and so that's somebody that's maybe a bit more unstable. You could do a stress test in the 80 to 90% because your question that you might be wanting to answer is different. It's looking for uh, risk assessment related to that. You can say, yes, I know they have coronary disease based on the story, but the stress test gives you some additional information. So which stress test? Is it an exercise ECG? Do we do it with imaging? Is that imaging nuclear echo? Or do we do pharmacologic stress tests? So these are some important things to consider and very testable uh, for the boards to kind of sort this out. So what do the guidelines say? Well, if you have an intermediate pretest probability of ischemic heart disease and an EKG that's interpretable and you're able to walk, you have moderate physical functioning, then a Exercise ECG test is a class one indication. If you have an intermediate to high pretest probability and have an uninterpretable ECG but are able to exercise, you do an exercise test with imaging. And it combines either echo or nuclear. And it only says uninterpretable. In the guidelines where they talk about um, evaluating for suspected coronary artery disease, they just put uninterpretable. They don't further define that uninterpretable ECG. Now, when do you do pharmacologic tests? Well, when you can't exercise. Pretty straightforward. And again, intermediate to high pretest probability who are incapable of exercising get a pharmacologic stress test, whether it's nuclear or echo. That's a class one recommendation. But stress testing isn't just for the diagnosis. You get a lot of information when you stress somebody. So again, it tells you about their coronary disease, but it tells you how bad is it. So if you have a small area of ischemia, uh, an infarction that's only encompassing maybe 6% of the myocardium, you might just do medical management. You've determined that they have coronary disease, but it doesn't have high-risk features. Versus a stress test like this, where there's a lot of ischemia in multiple coronary distributions, encompassing 35% of that myocardium. That would be somebody that you would be worried about, because coronary angiography in this case, and intervening, has mortality benefit. So again, the stress test gives you a lot of information. The time they exercise on that test is very important. Um, the symptoms, the blood pressure response, a lot of things that you get from exercising somebody. And if you have a normal perfusion imaging, you have a sense of comfort for that patient. So again, if you have men or women, if you have a normal myocardial perfusion imaging, heart event rate very low, even if you have a history of coronary disease, so known CAD, if you have a normal perfusion imaging, 
your risk is low. Again, there's a big, there is a statistical difference whether you have CAD or not, but again, the overall event rate is still fairly low. And if you had to have pharmacologic, it's a little bit higher because the mere fact that you couldn't exercise is a negative prognostic uh, sign. So going back to our gentleman, he was 55 years old, his chest pain was not typical angina, it was atypical angina. He had uh, quite high lipids, which maybe was FH. His ECG was normal, and he had no limitations on moderate activity. So his pretest probability of disease is intermediate to high. You could do an exercise treadmill test, which would be a class one. If you really said, you know, I, I really think he's going to have something, you could do with imaging, but that's a class 2A recommendation. So what if he had a left bundle? And we can discuss this more in the question and answers, but what if he had this ECG? What should you do? What testing would you perform? Is it an exercise echo, pharmacologic, or exercise ECG? Well, we can say the exercise ECG, no, it's an uninterpretable ECG, but which of these two? If you look at the guidelines, an exercise echo for suspected CAD is a class one, and we can talk about this more uh, in, in real-life situations. So when we talk about known coronary artery disease, how do we use stress testing? Well, here it's really, we're talking about more risk assessment. It does help with diagnosis, so how extensive is the disease, but really it's more about risk assessment and potentially for follow-up. And this is from the guidelines. Now, I showed you the guideline document, so this came out in 2012 in JAC and in circulation. The JAC document actually had some errors, so there was a supplement that came out a couple of years later, the CERC document, so if you wanted to go to the one that you don't have to go back and forth, the CERC document actually has the correct algorithm. And what you need to do with known ischemic heart disease, again, assess their ability to exercise and decide what testing to do based on whether they can exercise and have uh, an ECG that's interpretable. But off here to the side, there's special circumstances. And here, a left bundle on the ECG in known ischemic heart disease, you can either do an exercise echo or a pharmacologic stress test, either nuclear or echo. So exercise echo is felt to be a a doable test with a left bundle in somebody with known ischemic heart disease. That may not be what we do in real life, but this is what the guidelines say. So the pearls for the second learning objection. Exercise ECG tests for patients with intermediate pretest probability of CAD who can exercise and have an interpretable ECG. So that comes up not infrequently on test questions. If they have a normal ECG and can exercise, and you have an intermediate probability, you can just do exercise ECG. You can do imaging if you, I mean, that's a class 2A, so it's not unreasonable, it's just not a class 1 indication. If your ECG is uninterpretable, you can still do exercise, uh, but now you need imaging. If you have known CAD in a left bundle or paced rhythm, you can do an exercise echo or pharmacologic stress test. Third learning objectives, the medical management for uh, coronary artery disease and how they sort of get used and also will include diabetics. So what are the goals of therapy? Well, it's improved symptoms and quality of life, improve prognosis, increase survival, and prevent non-fatal events. And always risk factor modification. So I won't talk about these, Steve did an amazing job, but we always have to talk about lipids, blood pressure, weight management, how much aerobic activity, and clearly smoking cessation. But what do we need to deal with? We're talking about people with CAD and symptoms of angina. How do we help them feel better? And really, it's this complex interplay of myocardial oxygen uh, supply and demand. So de supply, demand, mismatch, something where the heart is demanding more oxygen, you can't get it, or something that's changing contractility. So a lot of factors go into this delicate balance between supply and demand. And this is where our medications come into play. Aspirin, that's an easy one, so we won't spend much time on that. So aspirin, known CAD, you give it, all right? Known or suspected CAD, you give aspirin. It's an irreversible platelet cyclooxygenase inhibitor. The range is wide. Uh, based on, in Europe, they have different doses, but really we're talking about 81 milligrams a day. And we know from multiple studies that uh, aspirin, secondary prevention, known CAD, is beneficial. Primary prevention, you saw from Steve's lecture, if your risk is really high, there may be a role. But again, secondary prevention, aspirin, part of the story. 
The dose is somewhat in question, uh, and there's a big study looking at that, adaptable, looking at the right dose. But again, for our purposes, they need an aspirin, 81 milligrams is what we use. What about other actual medications for anti-anginals, beta blockers? Beta blockers have a lot of beneficial effects. They have negative chronotropic effects, uh, negative inotropic effects. It helps ischemic tissue. But we have to remember that they interact with other AV nodal blocking agents, so you'll get slower heart rates, and other negative inotropes. So when you're talking about these medications in combination, remember what it's doing. And how do we use beta blockers in ischemic heart disease? Again, it's to reduce ischemic burden and threshold. It certainly improves survival when you have LV systolic dysfunction and a history of an MI. Remember to pick the right beta blocker for comorbid conditions, and again, very testable. If somebody has uh, renal disease or is very elderly, atenolol is not a great option. You'd pick metoprolol. If they have vasospastic uh, coronary disease where they have spasm and atherosclerosis, you want to choose carvedilol or labetalol, which have alpha properties, so you wouldn't get a selective beta blocker in that situation. If you have profound liver disease, you have to be careful with metoprolol and propranolol. So again, look at the company it keeps. The downsides, it causes fatigue, sexual dysfunction, or uh, people report nightmares. What about calcium channel blockers? These, you have the non-dihydropyridines uh, and the dihydropyridines. What's important to remember here is the non-dihydropyridines are the ones that have effects on the heart. So they are very beneficial for the cardiac uh, function. So again, negative uh, chronotropic, uh, negative inotropic, but the dihydropyridine, so your nifedipine, your amlodipine, they work on vasodilatation. So they're more in the periphery, which is why we don't talk about these agents for anti-anginal benefit. They are blood pressure medications, but not anti-anginal. It's really these that you want to talk about for uh, uh, helping somebody's angina. So again, what does the guidelines say? That you, for relief of angina, when beta blockers are either contraindicated or they're ineffective alone, you can add a calcium channel blocker. There's a class one. And then you can do those as the initial treatment with the long-acting non-dihydropyridines. That's a class 2A. If you have all vasospastic disease, these are great drugs. They help vasospasm. They're not recommended with heart failure or reduced ejection fraction. But there's a lot of drug-drug interactions. They do get edema. A verapamil causes constipation, so things to remember. What about nitrates? Nitrates, uh, they always come up in pressure volume loops, just an FYI. So uh, they drop preload, but that's not how we're talking about them for uh, our purposes for angina benefit. They actually are vasodilators. So they vasodilate, they vasodilate a lot of vasculature, so they vasodilate everything. But in the coronaries, they do vasodilate. Uh, so that's how they help angina. How do we use them? Again, they can be used when beta blockers are ineffective alone, or they can't be Beta blockers can't be used for another contraindication. That's a class one. Sublingual nitro, you always sort of keep that in your pocket. Also a great drug for vasospastic angina, but you do have this issue with nitrate tolerance and a headache. And a key thing is the avoidance with the PD-5 inhibitors. And I'll show you that because again, great test question. What happens with nitrates and PD-5 inhibitors? They cause profound vasodilatation and really refractory hypotension because they work, both work on cyclic GMP. So the levels of cyclic GMP go up markedly and you get profound hypotension and you can get a persistent erection. So what's the time span? Well, 24 to 48 hours between those doses. So you have to be very careful if you prescribe nitrates to somebody who is using one of these uh, agents. What about renolazine? Renolazine actually works on a sodium current, and that sodium current actually affects a calcium current, and so it reduces calcium within the cells. That helps the myocardium relax better. So by relaxing that myocardium, you actually get an improvement in anginal symptoms. However, the current guidelines give it a class 2A recommendation, so they can be used as a substitute for beta blockers for relief of symptoms, and they can also be used in combination, and that's actually how it came around, is that if people were having ongoing angina despite being on all the other medications, that this could be added, but you can use it as a substitute as well. What other therapies are out there? Well, there is 
some other things, but they all have 2B recommendations. Chelation therapy in the 2012 guidelines was actually a class three, but in the 2014, based on some very small uh, studies, it, they gave it a 2B. So it went from class three to a 2B. You have EECP, spinal cord stimulation, and TMR. And if every, anybody's wondering about acupuncture, class three. So it's actually in the, in, in the papers, so no acupuncture for angina relief. So if you look at EECP, um, this is just one study looking at this, and this is why it was given a, uh, some recommendation, although a 2B. We do see that when you use this external counterpulsation, there was an improvement in symptoms, and there was actually some uh, improvement in flow media dilatation. So a possibility. Now, for stable ischemic heart disease, we talked, uh, again, this is from the guidelines. We talked about these medications for angina relief. Risk factor modification is on this side. But we go down here and we start looking at, I'm not going to talk about hypertension, but we have diabetes. This is part of the guidelines that we have to talk about a diabetic patient independently. Diabetes, highly prevalent. Um, the incidence is, is more than 16 million Americans will have diabetes. It's actually an epidemic uh, worldwide. Um, and Two-thirds will die, actually, not related directly to the diabetes, but due to the cardiovascular complications. And again, we see mostly type 2 diabetes. Ischemic heart disease, if you are a diabetic, again, quite elevated. No matter what age you are, if you have type 2 diabetes mellitus, your prevalence of ischemic heart disease goes up dramatically. And we really saw that it was a coronary artery disease equivalent, risk equivalent. And this is from data way back in 1998 that said that if you had diabetes and never had an MI, it was like you were non-diabetic with an MI. So that's where that risk came about. We do have to recognize that women have a higher risk with their diabetes compared to men with diabetes. And newer data suggests that it might not be exactly equal, but it's fairly close. Where do we have therapy? Well, there's a lot of different places that you can go to for treating type 2 diabetes. So first of all, one of the uh, uh, agents, acarbose, which actually decreases intestinal carb carbohydrate absorption, sort of slows the absorption. This doesn't do a profound effect on blood sugars. It does help a little bit, but it causes significant GI disturbance, actually very high rates of flatulence, which ate carbo. So not a lot of people too eager to take that particular medication. Uh, Sulfonurias increase insulin secretion. Uh, metformin actually suppresses hepatic glucose production. And the TZDs work peripherally. They actually, um, they, they do a lot with glucose and fat metabolism, but they do work in the muscles and adipose, although not so much in visceral adipose tissue. What do we know about these different agents? Well, if you look at the, the UK prospective diabetes trial, um, they looked at high intense sort of intensive treatment, conventional treatment, and they specifically looked at metformin. They looked at multiple different uh, features. They found that metformin actually was associated with the best outcomes in these patients with diabetes. Uh, the intensive group and the conventional group, that is looked at further, and multiple studies have looked at how tight of a control should we have? What should we be doing with our diabetics? And this particular study, looking at five different trials, over 27,000 patients, the conclusion was that intensive glucose control does reduce some CVD outcomes, mostly non-fatal MIs, and it reduced some microvascular complications of diabetes, but it did not reduce the risk for CV death or all-cause mortality, and there was an increased risk for severe hypoglycemia. So because of that, the guidelines say that if you are um, a diabetic but you have a long, you're young, long life expectancy, then a 2A for tight control. But if you are older with established macrovascular complications, which is coronary disease, then your goal hemoglobin A1C should be 7 to 9%. So it should not be that tight. Do TZDs increase morbidity and mortality? Well, they work, again, differently. They work on receptors at the periphery. It's controversial, but the important thing to remember is rosiglitazone. You actually, if you're on it, you can stay on it, but prescribing it is very, very, very difficult, and you have to go through a lot of uh, loopholes to do it. Um, so again, very, very restricted prescribing, so essentially should not be used. And that's based on this study showing the risk of myocardial infarction or death 
from cardiovascular diseases related to the use of rosiglitazone. That's why we don't use it. Pioglitazone does not have that risk for cardiovascular death, but can increase your risk of heart failure. So an important thing to consider. There are some new drugs out there. This won't be on the boards, but people are looking at new ways to treat diabetes. These are two uh, new agents. This works on actually excreting glucose. This works on insulin. And they do seem to be promising to decrease CV mortality, so more to come in the future. So pearls for this learning objectives, Anna Angelou, start with beta blockers in diabetics with CAD, 7 to 9%, and metformin is the thing to use if you can. This learning objection, fairly brief, what medical management should we have for those who have had been revascularized? Well, the meds we talked about for uh, angina, first of all, aspirin indefinitely, beta blockers if you've had a prior MI, acute coronary syndrome, or a low EF, ACE inhibitor for these indications, but both of these meds can be used chronically with ischemic heart disease. They have a class 2A and 2B recommendation, but anybody with vascular disease, coronary artery disease can get both of these agents. What about the antiplatelet therapy? Aspirin, again, easy, forever. This is the range, 81 milligrams is what we use. What about clopidogrel? Well, here I put six months, that's with a drug-eluting stent. So currently, if you had a, a drug-eluting stent, your duration of uh, clopidogrel is six months. A bare metal stent is at one month. At the end of that one month and six month, you can reevaluate and look at the patient's risk of bleeding, and you could increase the time a little further. So you could go a bare metal stent, you can go longer than a month. For the drug-looting stent, you can go longer than six months. If, however, you have something happen with a drug-looting stent before that six months, you could stop it at three months if the risk of bleeding is really high. Very important to remember that ticagrelor and prasugrel are not indicated for stable ischemic heart disease. They're for acute coronary syndromes. Our last learning objective, which we'll look at some other cases. So again, they don't fit in that stable CAD category, but important to recognize because the stem will tell you the story. So this is a 78-year-old female with Crohn's who presents with abdominal pain and nausea. She's got a history of elevated blood pressure, but no other coronary disease. She actually came in not having any chest pain, but she was a little short of breath the day prior. She's tachycardic, and she has this tense abdomen. She's anemic. The CT shows free air. So she undergoes emergency surgery with a total abdominal colectomy. She gets a lot of volume, and she's just kind of punky. She's not doing well. She complains of sort of discomfort everywhere. She's actually a little hypotensive. So, of course, they do an ECG, and it shows sort of these nonspecific changes. It looked different than her baseline. So then what do they do? They order troponins, which of course are positive, and this is the bane of most cardiology's existence, but keeps us in business. This is an immediate cardiology consult. And she gets an echocardiogram. She just had her belly opened up, and this is what we see. LV is dilated, severely dysfunctional, parasternal long, a short axis uh, sort of at the mid-ventricle where this is all you see moving, the apex is akinetic, and here's our four-chamber, the LV here, where the base is only moving. So obviously, what is this? Apical ballooning. She gets a coronary angiogram a couple of days later, which was unremarkable. They elected to go ahead and do that because she was an elderly woman with some risk factors. But again, what she had was apical ballooning. What you have to remember, this is postmenopausal women usually. Usually after some stressful thing, emotional or physiologic stress, sepsis can be one. They can get any type of ST changes. You can get ST elevation, but they're fairly diffuse. They present as an acute coronary syndrome, and they can present with acute heart failure. The troponins usually peak early. Usually you've got to do an angiography first before you really can say for sure. It's sort of a diagnosis, a bit of exclusion. But overall, the prognosis is quite good. This is how it was first described, Takasubo, for the octopus uh, pot, the pot that captures the octopi. And the etiologies are not fully cleared. There's been talk about coronary spasm, microvascular dysfunction, catecholamines. Maybe there was a minor plaque rupture with lysis. We don't fully know. But this uh, paper, this study, did show that catecholamine levels were significantly higher in these patients, even compared to those with um, a KILP class 3 MI. So profound surge of catecholamines for these patients. This is another case indicating another uh, um, 
other sort of thing we have to think about. 37-year-old female, healthy person, no risk factors. She gets this heavy chest pain. ECG is unremarkable, normal exam, but troponins are positive. They take her to angiography, and this is what was described, where there was plaque rupture in the right. She gets a very complicated procedure to the right coronary. She's in shock, and she kind of leaves the hospital. She has an EF that's a little low. Six months later, she gets more chest pain. Troponin this time is unremarkable, but they take her to coronary angiography because she just had this intervention. And this is a still frame showing her circumflex. Well, this time, luckily, nothing was done, and they did ultrasound. And what we see here is that she has spontaneous coronary dissection with a large intramural hematoma, and here's the dissection entry point. And as you go down, this dissection is spiraling down. So this is SCAD. SCAD is not atherosclerosis. It's usually in premenopausal, mostly women, 20% peripartum. They don't have risk factors. They're very, very, very unlikely. They're really quite healthy. Um, it is not that rare. If you look at the cause of peripartum MI and MIs in women under 40, this is number one cause. There are some familial cases. It can present like a STEMI, and it's very important to recognize this. It's important and challenging to diagnose. You have to have a high index of suspicion. If you're not sure, use IVIS or OCT to make that diagnosis. Typically, the coronaries are very tortuous. If you intervene, there can be an excess risk of complications. So if there is good flow, try not to touch the artery. If you, I mean, we all want to fix things, but you want to sort of wait it out because it can heal without intervention. There is a recurrence rate, which is scary, but the survival is quite good. And it's associated with fibromuscular dysplasia, which I know you heard about in Dr. Pollock's talk about hypertension. But here is fibromuscular dysplasia. Here are the iliacs. Here's bilateral. So an important um, comorbid condition. The long-term management is rehab, aspirin, although the evidence is lacking. You treat other things as indicated. Statins only if they have other indications, not for this event. Um, nitrates and calcium channel blockers if they have chest pain and spasm. We do do vascular screeching for look for FMD, and we do send them the medical genetics. They should avoid a pregnancy, and uh, hormone use is also um, potentially a problem. So pearls for this last learning objective, not all chest pain is atherosclerosis. Think SCAD in a young woman without traditional risk factors. It's really hard to avoid angiography and suspected cases of stress cardiomyopathy. And we didn't talk about coronary vasospasm, but think of that in people who have anginal-type chest pain that happens at rest or non-predictably more common in women. And with that, I thank you very much. Take a breath and <laughs> have a seat. Um, you, you should notice um, these learning objectives that um, the speakers all put up because um, they, they are assigned to make sure that you, as the audience, achieves the learning objective. And, and it's very, very important because if you go through this entire course and you know that you've achieved each learning objective, you've learned everything we wanted you to do. Now, with coronary disease, I gave you, I think, five learning objectives, um, but I think Reka did a beautiful job of accomplishing each one of them because it, there's a, right, a wide gamut of things that you need to know. But these are the important concepts that you'll specifically need to know when you're tested. So let's go back to this 40-year-old woman, presents with severe retrosternal chest pain 15 minutes after completing a five-mile run. Associated with diaphoresis and jaw pain, she's got uh, ST elevation in her inferior leads, no other risk factors. The most likely diagnosis is, go ahead. Oh, right. so close. Not 95, but almost. Um, you see a lot of SCAD, right? We do see a lot of SCAD. And it's, it, it really is the story of after something very exertional that they have. It can actually, it, usually they've just been out running or they're training for some big triathlon. I mean, these are, they're exerting themselves usually quite a bit with this, but the key is they really have no traditional risk factors. A 40-year-old woman having a, a acute coronary syndrome with plaque rupture is extremely small. So when you think of this age population, the more likely reason for an acute MI is actually SCAD. 
you shoot their coronaries, right. but then you try to tie the interventionist's hands after right. they look, right? Uh, but sometimes you have to intervene, though, because if you have Timmy zero flow and they're having uh, ongoing chest pain and ST elevation, sometimes you have to fix it. But if there is Timmy two plus to Timmy three flow, you really want to step back. They will heal. So you try, because the moment you start intervening with wires and stents, that dissection spirals both anterograde and, you know, further stream and backwards. Yeah. They get the wire in the wrong place and all goes to pot. Now, do you, what do you tell them about exercise then after? An yeah, exercise? and so cardiac rehab is very important and we do want them to exercise, but we tell them to avoid those high intensity. Now that's really difficult because a lot of these women are really active, very fit. So we do tell them to be active and fit, but not to the extreme. So don't train for a, you know, an Ironman race. Um, and so you wanna be careful of doing those really high level activities. Okay, and it's, are, are we just seeing more and more of it or do you think it, there's becoming an epidemic or being recognized? I think it's what? being recognized. I think these were people that were um, getting intervention. I mean, if, if you think about it, the mortality for a females with acute MI is higher than men with acute MI, and where that mortality really is is in the younger women having it, so it might be because it was this and not recognized, so I don't know. But I think maybe you know with the fitness stuff and the hormones and maybe with pregnancies happening later in life, so it probably is something that not only are we recognizing but maybe occurring more often because of the changes in our lifestyle. All right, next one. 67-year-old woman referred for exertional chest discomfort, is not able to do an exercise test. Um, she's got diabetes for 10 years. She had a non-STEMI with a drug-eluting stent to the right. She's on aspirin, clopidogrel, and metoprolol. She has a BMI of 42, a blood pressure of 150. Here's her electrocardiogram. Her hemoglobin A1C is 9.5%. Okay. Now, what is the best choice of an oral hypoglycemic agent? Yay! Very good. You guys did well on this before, so yeah, of these, this is the best agent. So, but you know, so let me ask you this: is certainly can't be tested with the SGL2 inhibitors, mm -hmm. but um, what, in your own practice, are you starting to use them and, and in what type of patient? And so I personally do not start treatment for diabetes. I certainly, that's certainly a discussion with either uh, primary care or endocrinology. I think you have to, because I'm not the one following blood sugar, so I don't think that I should be starting these agents when I'm not the one that can keep track of things. But I do have this conversation um, where I see it being interest, potential when we get to metformin is before somebody comes, becomes a full-blown diabetic. So in the metabolic a patient in the patient with uh, polycystic ovary syndrome, metformin may be very beneficial. But for the new agents, I don't think we know, but they sound very promising. So I think the, we don't quite know where that's gonna go yet, but I'd like to see that something beyond metformin is gonna be beneficial because you can't usually use metformin alone for a lot of these patients. So the next step is insulin, and if you can again avoid that insulin and use some of these yeah. uh, GLP uh, agents, I think you're gonna have benefit. Yeah, I, I, I predict in the next couple of years, they will become our treatment of choice for cardiovascular patients. Because um, not only has it been shown for the morbidity mm -hmm. and mortality, but heart failure. You know, it, right. it really is a diuretic. Right. So um, we'll see, and may, maybe if you come in the next year or two years, um, it'll, it'll, by then it'll be incorporated into the practice. So we'll just have to keep up and see. Now, go to the next question. Strict glucose control. So in other words, what are you gonna put the hemoglobin A1C in this person? 6.5 with insulin and metformin or use an insulin and the TZD for a hemoglobin A1C of 6.5 or be a little bit more lenient and have a hemoglobin A1C less than eight. An improvement. Yeah. <laughs> but 
yeah, so this patient has coronary artery disease. They had a non-STEMI. So the, when we talk about tight control, you're really talking about the patient who's younger without uh, the microvascular, macrovascular complications related to diabetes. This patient has those complications. Creatinine's a little bit up, so you would not go as tight as less than 7%. This would be 7 to 9%. So. Yeah, because of the risk of hypoglycemia Correct. and um, having to be on insulin, so on and so forth. Okay, next one. All of the following interventions are class one indications for stable ischemic disease except for Renolazine, beta blockers, influenza vaccine, calcium channel blockers. Okay. Influenza, talk about that. Yeah, so influenza vaccine is actually a class one indication for anybody with stable ischemic heart disease. Yearly flu vaccine. So... In the guidelines, I think, you know, what, what, I mean, if you look at the literature, people who get the flu have a higher risk of cardiovascular uh, morbidity and mortality. So getting the flu is not a benign thing. So we should all be protecting ourselves. But certainly um, when we talk about people already with coronary disease, the protection needs to be even greater. So um, a few questions from the audience on now that we're in stable coronary disease. Um, Beta blockers, uh, do you give them only for symptoms or do you just continue them to be protective of stable coronary artery disease? So you start it for symptoms and then you continue it for coronary atherosclerosis. So clearly they have anti-anginal benefit, but if you look at their benefits just in having coronary atherosclerosis, and again, the recommendation is a 2B, but I think most of us feel that if you have atherosclerosis, that you do benefit from beta blockade. And again, it helps blood pressure, it helps heart rate, so for exercise purposes, it can be very beneficial. So I do think that beta blockers should be continued chronically for patients with uh, uh, ischemic heart disease. Now, there were some questions about patients who might have had a previous MI or previous stent for acute coronary syndrome. I, I want to clarify that what Rake is talking about is for the patient with stable coronary artery disease. This afternoon, Nandan's going to give you an entire afternoon of patients with acute coronary syndrome. So the duration and the agents and everything changes once you develop an acute coronary syndrome versus a stable coronary artery disease. I, so I just want to clarify that up front for those of you who've been asking questions, and then we'll listen this afternoon to what we should do once a patient becomes unstable enough. Now, as we continue on the stable coronary artery disease, um, the, you kept on saying an uninterpretable ECG for these exercise tests. Can you define what uninterpretable is? And yeah, so it's baseline STT changes is what we typically talk about. So um, STT changes with, that are either um, ST depression, a little J-point elevation doesn't qualify, but I know that when we look at that, we do worry a little bit. T-wave inversions, if somebody's on digoxin, those are all considered uninterpretable ECGs. Now, a left bundle is also uninterpretable, and it's interesting if you look at these documents because they talk about a left bundle only in the patients with the known CAD. In the suspected CAD, they don't do an offshoot related to a left bundle. So the left bundle, in my opinion, according to that the document is part of the uninterpretable. But they don't say that you have to jump right to a pharmacologic test with a left bundle if you are doing the test for suspected CAD. And, and there were a lot of questions on the left bundle affecting the septum. Right. What about echocardiography with a left bundle? It does affect it. I mean, I'm an echocardiographer, so it changes the septal motion. Now, you see it at rest, though, so your resting echo will look abnormal with this paradoxical septal motion, which gets pronounced with exercise. So, you know, if you have an experienced group of uh, readers for your stress echo, they will make that comment that there is the abnormal septal motion. If that's the only thing that's left at peak exercise, then it's the bundle. You'd be looking for other things. But it does, so it's, you know, again, in real life, what do you do versus what this says? 
if I was really worried about somebody having obstructive CAD that I wanted to know what to do about, and I wanted the best test, then I would do a pharmacologic nuclear test to sort of avoid this. But you can exercise these people. And the thing you have to also remember is that you get prognostic information with your exercise portion. You just have to take the results and then determine what you want to do with those results if they are wishy-washy or they say could be all due to the bundle, but we're not sure, then it becomes a little bit more of a complication as far as trying to figure out the next steps. Yeah, so probably a left bundle for exercise echo, um, it won't give you the sensitivity and specificity for localized coronary disease, but certainly if you're doing it for prognosis mm -hmm. to look for severe Correct. proximal coronary disease, you could see the whole ventricle right. fall That's apart. That's right, so. yeah. Okay. Um, and then lastly, on the coronary disease, CT angiogram in that workup. You know, the Europeans mm -hmm. have come out and said that that could be used, and what, what's your thought there? So for, for these types of patients, there's no class one recommendation, so they're all a class 2A to 2B recommendation. I think you can use it if somebody can't exercise and you don't want to give them a pharmacologic stress test. So, or you do a pharmacologic stress test and the results are sort of equivocal. You're, it's not quite positive. You're not really sure. Then a coronary angiogram is um, a reasonable test. I personally don't, in this population, don't use it very much only because if that's abnormal, then we have to talk about going on to a traditional coronary angiogram potentially, and so there's two different procedures. Also, if there's a lot of calcification in, these in, in the vessels, knowing the actual obstruction can be very hard. And I like to know functional data. I mean, just having a lesion doesn't tell you how that lesion is acting. So for me, having functional information is really important. I, th I think there's a little bit more utility, and Nandan will talk about that in the patient presenting with chest pain, acute chest pain. Um, but, you, you know, it really doesn't give you the functional information that you get from a right. treadmill test. Okay, next, the final question. Following PCI for stable angina, which one of the following is indicated? Um, Prazagril, Tacagrelor, Clopidogrel, or vitamin E? All right. All right. So a couple more questions that have come up from the audience on um, antiplatelet agents. Um, what about enteric-coated aspirin versus non-enteric-coated? Yeah, so ideally it should be non-enteric-coated. So that's a simple answer. If you can get away, with, if their stomach can handle it, which most of the time they can. I mean, I think it's one of these things that they got into this notion that, you know, I have ulcer disease or I have reflux and I need to be on a coated aspirin. But the benefit is really with the non-coated aspirin. Yeah, because of the <coughs> problems with uh, unknown absorption. Correct. When you get the little uh, orange things with the coat on them. And then the final question that always comes up, you got a patient who's on a warfarin or a DOAC for atrial fibrillation. <coughs> Excuse me, they get a stent. What do you do with your antiplatelets? Yeah, and, and the... So the guidelines are a little nebulous about this. They don't really know exactly what to say. There isn't a lot of studies really telling you what to do. So in that first month, I mean, you have to think about where the risk of bleeding is and where the benefit is. So, you know, obviously being on triple therapy is a problem for increased risk of bleeding. So in that first month, we would try to use everything. And then at the end of a month, stop the aspirin and do clopidogrel and the warfarin for the completing out the year. Now, if it is a stable patient, then it's six months for, after a drug-looting stent that you could stop the clopidogrel for acute coronary syndrome, which Nandan will talk about, that goes longer. So we, we try to not do all three of those agents for the entire duration of needing the dual antiplatelet part of it. And that goes for warfarin as well as Correct. the OAX, right? 